<clears throat> Good evening, you two. How are you? Hi. Great. Great. How are you doing? I'm wonderful. Thank you for asking. Uh, maybe you could just take a moment just to introduce yourselves for our uh, listeners and viewers. Sure. Uh, my name is Chris, and this is my wife, Amy, and we are the hosts of True Crime Recaps. Excellent. So yeah, that's a, a YouTube channel uh, covering a, a, you know a f far-reaching uh, criminal cases from from what I've seen. Maybe we could start with um, talking about how true crime has become such a big deal in the last several years. It seems like everyone's got a true crime itch that needs to be itched, and people seem very fascinated with various podcasts. Which to me, on the on the outside of it, you wouldn't think because it's it's obviously involves a lot of gory real life details. It can be quite grim at times, but people don't seem to be able to get enough of the uh, of the genre. Maybe you could uh, explain some of the psychology behind that for me. I'll take this. That's okay. <laughs> I'm validated. I'm like, I love it. I mean, it's sickening to say I love it, but my God, it's fascinating. Personally, for me, I, I mean, I love the mystery of it, the trying to determine like who did it, what happened exactly, the puzzle of it. But a lot of women that I've that I talk to, my age and like younger, older, have always said they really like true crime for the pure, like for the tips in a way to understand, oh, maybe I shouldn't get in that car with that hot stranger that's wearing a cast because he could be the next Ted Bundy, you know, something like that, that they've said, it's honestly tells you what not to do. It tells you like, hey, what's possible? Hey, that neighbor is not just a creeper. He's also a total serial killer with five girls in his basement. You know what I mean? So I think there's a lot of people that, that do look at it like that not just you know entertainment as a cautionary tale yeah it's a cautionary tale. I, it, it, because it, it also just feels like the more you delve into it the more you realize how much of it there is you know one of one of the things people say to me all the time is wow you probably never run out of material you know as bad as it is to say but when you start to see these circumstances and all of the stories that are out there throughout the decades it does it, it it makes you more cautious in your life you know? yeah yeah i think I, I think i heard someone once say they used to listen along to true crime podcast to try and you know get see how far they could get before they they would imagine they'd also be murdered in the same way as the victim because sometimes they'd be like ah i wouldn't have done that i wouldn't have yeah, left my yeah. power unlocked kind of thing see how almost play it as a game and it's it kind of it's there's this line isn't it between consuming it as entertainment and also trying to understand that these are real people and these are these are you know real things people have gone through with surviving family members and things like that how much how much does that cross your mind when you're making your content all the so time yeah. especially with this with the the recent idaho murders case um in moscow idaho we're actually from that area and those people you know just to hear the details about where it happened what happened it just really brings it home, literally, that you're just, my God. You, you think about that place that you know, and that happened there. That just seems so incredible. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. I can imagine that's surreal. And I, I will be talking plenty about the um, Idaho Moscow case uh, shortly. But you also provided us some uh, coverage and commentary on the Madeleine McCann case, which is a massive uh, UK centric issue. The child's obviously from the UK, as the parents are. This was a, uh, a crime that occurred in Europe, in Portugal, and it's being covered across the pond by you guys. What first, uh, you know, what, when did this first land on your radar? What made you interested in this case? This was definitely something like ever since it happened, it, it's been just shocking and prevalent everywhere, like you said, globally, just because the family just seems like every family you know they're on a vacation they're just going to dinner they're not that far away a lot of parents make this decision i know that's many people have been like that's a terrible decision and obviously they've regretted it every day since but a lot of parents make that decision to go and leave the kids and just check on them frequently and they're having a good time with and their friends and they're trying to have it all and you feel safe in a yeah in a resort like yeah. that a lot of these places you go to different countries to visit Sometimes you end up staying in the resort and, you know, you don't have to leave if you don't want to. It's very contained. It's a it's like a small gated community. So you do feel sort of there's a maybe maybe a little bit of a false sense of security there. You know, well, yeah, clearly in this, in, case, in this for case, for sure. sure yeah. But yeah. 
So, I mean, I, I, there's this sort of sense that people have uh, when I speak about this case that a lot of time was perhaps wasted pointing the finger at the parents when there are other suspects, more credible leads in the grass. It seems like the the general consensus, certainly in England where I am, is that the Portuguese police didn't do a particularly thorough and good job because a lot of time was spent uh, pointing fingers at the parents. What What's your feeling on that issue? Well, I, I, I mean, I think that, I think this is a common problem. Um, I know that 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 sentiment has been extended to the officials in, in, in North Idaho as well. Um, I think the tune's changing a little bit on that, on that feeling. But, um, you know, I think in the absence of any real evidence, leads, you, you know, you, you kind of come down to, well, who, who could this person be? And it is, it can be family members a lot of the time. So yeah. it's not, it's, and, and, and there's a lot of pressure as well when it, especially on a case that's this international, this well-known, um, you know, I, I wouldn't want to lay any blame or fault on the Portuguese authorities, but I do, I, maybe I, I can understand why it's frustrating for people when uh, nothing feels like it's being done. And, and then I would also at the same time, not, really fault them for for looking at the parents as a as a but possibly i think it's been said that maybe if they were going to look at the parents it was something that maybe they could have done you know, right away as maybe a first step rather than a tenth step yeah for sure i mean it seems like a lot of interest in this uh case of certainly in the uk seemed to dissipate quite a bit i think i read something along the lines of 2022 i think was the first year that the parents didn't do their yearly appeal for more information it seems like momentum was being lost however a person who's been on the radar for quite some time as a potential suspect uh christian bruckner i believe uh it looks like there has been some movement on that score it looks like he will be facing some uh, official charges shortly is there anything you can tell me about this individual and the the uh pending charges yeah, well, right now, um, currently, he's serving a seven-year prison sentence for uh, raping a 72-year-old American woman who was in Portugal. Uh, this, I believe this happened in the mid-early 2000s. And that crime went unanswered for a long time until they found a trove of files on thumb drives and different hard drives and things like that in his, it, on a property that he uh, stayed at. And they found the, um, a video that showed him committing this crime. So he's in, in prison right now for that. So, you know, I, I say that to say this, that he's a known sex offender and, um, and he is a suspect because he was in, he was living in a house just a mile away from the resort at the time. And they also have the evidence that his, phone, his cell phone pinged in the area at the time of the, of the disappearance. So I believe that they have, um, I believe that they're, they're, they've accused him partially just because he's, he, he, it's a, it's a possibility. He fits the, um, the profile. And, but they also just want to make sure that the, you know, there's also the, the instance of time that's running out. The statute could, could, uh, could expire. So that I think has been stopped, but I think too, it's interesting to see that the German prosecutor is very, very, very sure that they have the evidence they need that they can charge him, but he's been named a suspect, as you know, for years now, and mm -hmm. they have never charged him. But like, you know, like you've, you already know they are, they're saying they're going to charge him. This is the year, any day now, any second now they're going to charge him. So I have to wonder what kind of evidence did they, what, what did they have to first accuse him? And then why didn't they charge him? Why are they only now charging him? Literally, I think three years later, almost three years later, from they accused him in 2020. And here we are in 2023. I have read, now I don't know if this is just speculation or this like a leaked source that they have fibers from her pajamas found in his van that they managed to somehow like get the van back, but 
again, that might just be speculation and, and maybe they found more video, maybe they found more photos. It's very unclear why they haven't charged him yet, but. I think part of the reason is the, um, is understanding who made the phone call that placed his cell phone at the scene of the crime. That, that seems to be a big piece of evidence. The, uh, the German prosecutor says they are sure that Christian Bruckner killed Madeline McCann and, and that he has, that they have evidence, not forensic evidence, but other evidence. But he does say that the, the a missing piece is that, that who made that phone call because it came from a prepaid cell phone. So they can't, it's a very difficult thing to figure out, but I feel that it's something pretty important for them to have in order to complete the circle, to make the charge. Sorry. So just to um, get some clarification on the, the phone aspect of it, are we, did, are we saying that he received a phone call and they need to figure out, figure out who rang him or he made a phone call? What, what Correct. details are? No, no, he, he received a phone call. Received right, and, then, a phone call. And, and they are able to put the cell phone, they're able to place the phone in the area at the time of the crime. But was, was he there? Did he answer the phone? You know, that's what that's what they're trying to understand. That's interesting because there's a lot of discussion as well. I mean, this is this is the problem we fall into when um, there's an open case with these lots of speculation, like you've said, and uh, mystery and often conspiracy. But there's a lot of discussion about the, the potential for him to have been some sort of trafficker in that sense and working within a larger group or for other individuals. That's, I'm like, this yeah. phone call thing is so interesting to me because I hadn't, I'm not as, as up on this case as he is, so I'm, I'm learning a lot here too. But I think it's interesting that if the German prosecutor says, no, he was not the middleman, he didn't, because I completely what you're saying, that there's been a lot of speculation that she was a kidnap for, for on request, you know, like somebody mm. is for that type of child. But they say, no, he was the one that killed He's her and that she was gone like fairly quickly after she was after she disappeared from what i understand but so i wonder why they're so curious about a phone call that would say that would like lend more support to that theory about a kidnap for hire but interesting i mean for crying out loud just charge the guy already let's get more details <laughs> years so it i mean every day i feel like i wake up and google like madeline what happened with that and still just nothing 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 so they do say they have the evidence and that they they're sure of it so what? and uh, i don't know if you if you know this or anything if we've been told but when can we expect to be presented with this information or an official charge being made if they will give a date just yesterday i heard that that it was within days so right. i would expect maybe by the end of this week if not early next week but again what what's the hold up over there people yeah. like, come on that, that it's yeah it's interesting and whatever is holding it up must be like you say a key piece but it's yeah who knows we'll wait and see so we'll definitely keep an eye on that see how it unfolds obviously there's a massive amount of public interest in this case and i'm, I'm sure you guys would be uh interesting in following up on your channel when when the information's in but moving closer to home and uh, as we uh referenced at the start of this conversation the the uh killings that took place uh uh, nearer to you in Idaho, Moscow. Uh, maybe you could just give a, a brief outline of the specifics there in terms of how many, you know, the location, who these people were, uh, and what happened to them. Yeah, absolutely. On November 13th, 2022, a 911 call was made from an off campus house in Moscow, Idaho, that is like northern Idaho. And the caller reported an unconscious person at the house. Very unclear language, but we haven't gotten any more clarification on that specifically. The police arrived to see a lot of other people that didn't live in the house there, as well as two roommates that did live there. And four roommate, four people that three of them were roommates that lived in the house and one was a boyfriend. So could, you got their names right. Yeah. So go ahead. Oh, the names of the, of the victims, uh, Kaylee Gonsalves, uh, Madison Mogan. Zana Kernodal and Ethan Chapin. Uh, Zana and Ethan were a couple. Um, and that's why I believe it's, it's, it's understood that that's why Ethan was in the house. 
Right, so they were, had all been stabbed to death. What's very unclear is why the roommates didn't know that they'd been stabbed to death. The police later called the scene sloppy, messy, bloodbath. I mean, we, I'm sure we've all seen the horrifying photos of the blood actually leaking from the house, from the outside of the house. Just, yeah. just a monstrous act. Unbelievable, but the fact that they didn't know that the roommates had been stabbed seemed to suggest that their doors were closed and or locked. Something again that we haven't had clarification about yet because a lot of this information has been kept close to the vest this entire time until they've made the arrest and even after the probable cause affidavit hasn't yet been released so we're guessing on a lot of this stuff but um when they did find these four brutal murders the very first thing they did was start you know looking at is was it the roommates they were in the house surviving roommates on the very first floor they were cleared right away people around them there was a lot of footage coming in from local businesses and parties that the kids had been to earlier that night they're all in their tw early 20s and a lot of speculation about people around them men talking to them was one or more of them targeted but right away if you remember the moscow the idaho police said this is a crime of passion everybody be cool it's totally fine because the main source of employment the, the entire town is built around this college the university, the university yeah. of idaho they and didn't want everybody they didn't want to scare everybody exactly so like don't worry about it everything's fine and then you know a couple Sounds of like the mayor like, from jaws yeah and yeah, they're like yeah, well, right. maybe everything's not fine maybe you should start locking your doors and people are like what you're killing us well so, right away right away people were suspect of that council in the yeah. first place you know the the look it was a, it was a targeted attack so we don't have anybody we don't have a suspect but don't worry you're safe i mean yeah it, it, and, and people didn't really buy that very easily either it it's been seem. strange so all along then they kind of changed from well it wasn't the people who were targeted it was the house which is interesting in light of the arrest that they've made now so everything that they've said up to this point we kind of look at with a new eye and be like well why did they say that why did they mean that does that have anything to do with the evidence that they have against him or, you know, the kind of prosecution that they're planning to mount? But in any case, so these four have been said the murder weapon was not found. They believe it to be like a large K-bar knife, like a Rambo style knife, fixed blade, a military issue with the, the handguard. So if you're holding it, there's a guard here so that you can't cut your own your hand on your own knife in a combat situation. Slide. So that's the kind of like serious weapon they've been looking for and haven't been able to find. And again, who knows if they found it in Brian Koberg or their suspects things. They've just searched this place and they haven't released any kind of information on what they found, if anything. But I mean, it's been seven weeks uh, before his arrest from the arrest to the murders and anything could have happened to that knife in the meantime. But it's an interesting case certainly one that everybody is following very closely around that area and throughout the u.s and throughout the country yeah. yeah yeah and um in terms of this idea of the like the murder weapon being a quote-unquote like rambo knife i mean what what are the laws in the in the state about carrying that or concealing that on your person or can somebody just have a blade on their person legal i mean is, is this something that's common or is this a is it does this like sort of point to the fact that this person's got a weapon and this is premeditated he's took that weapon out with the explicit um desire to cause harm well i'm so glad you asked because specifically it's interesting in this state because idaho is a very it's hunting it's outdoorsy you're fishing you're doing all the things that you would that you would I, I, you would probably use a knife like that for uh, yeah, you could. I, I wouldn't. I can't imagine there being any law against owning one and carrying one in in the state of Idaho outside of age. You know, maybe maybe right. you know if you're under 16, 14, something like that. Um, that's the only. I'm, yeah. I'm I'm speculating on that. I don't know that for sure, but I'm, I'm I would be very surprised. One thing though that's to understand is that they're not readily available like you can't just go into like any kind of store and buy one they the cops were asking around like the sporting goods stores did you sell any of these do you have any of these for sale and they seem to be saying no 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 we don't have them we didn't sell one we don't remember we don't have anything they even had to go to the national guard are you familiar with that the national guard yeah 
at the school, it's called the ROTC program, students in that program. And I believe that they had one or a few, whatever, on display there. They used them in some way or maybe for a training or to show like a demonstration. And they even asked them, like, are all your knives present and accounted for? Like, where did this knife come from seems to be one of the questions. So who knows? Maybe that's part of the evidence that they have that they were able to trace a purchase or something back to this person, maybe made in Pennsylvania or one of the many outdoory states around Idaho. I mean, the yeah. entire country, that part because of the country the is very like, yeah. sure, everybody's got a, army a surplus. An army surplus store is, it would yeah. have it. And uh, in terms of where the the suspect who's now been arrested was picked up from in, in the state of Pennsylvania, did you say, is that right? H how far is that from the scene of the crime? 2,500 miles. Yeah. Right. <laughs> he was from there originally. He he was in Washington State, actually, which is only eight miles across the border of Idaho. They're right next to each other. And he's there at Washington State University studying to be for his doctorate degree in criminology, which is, of course, like the big bizarre kicker in this case that the guy was literally focused on studying criminal minds, specifically violent offenders. Those serial killers, murderers, rapists, like the really bad ones. Mm -hmm. And that's really what he was, his focus was on like forensic psychology, forensics, criminology, criminal justice. And he had just moved there in August to start the fall semester. So he hadn't been there very long uh, from Pennsylvania, which is, I guess, why his, I'm like, we're just full of information. So stop me if, <laughs> if you know, you have questions before I continue to ramble on. But his father, apparently had flown out from Pennsylvania to meet up with his son and drive back with him to Pennsylvania for the holidays. So that was a pre-planned trip that they, they've said that was planned before he left. So it wasn't necessarily like a get out of town, you know, run for the hills type of a move. But it's interesting that he he did just drive there and back not not long before and not long necessarily after the murders. One thing, though, speaking of the car that has come out, one of the biggest deals, of course, how they found him was his car, that white Hyundai Elantra, that they caught it on, you know, doorbell cams and surveillance footage from local businesses in this area. They're calling the scene of the crime around the same time, speeding away. Doesn't look good for whoever was driving that, but not necessarily a bad thing, a smoking car, if you will. But <laughs> that's how they found him based on that and his genetic DNA, apparently, that they found on at the crime scene and then ran through publicly available databases like Ancestry, like 23andMe, to chase that back from a distant relative to him. This is what's been speculated, of course, from local, you know, sources close to the investigation, law sources to various media outlets. So we can assume 99% this is correct, using that car as a guide. So they're they're trying to find somebody close to the area. They're trying to find somebody who maybe has drives that car. And what do you know? They land on Brian's name. And meanwhile, he's already in Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. So they, now they have to work with different jurisdictions, which is kind of what's making me anyway say, well, they must have something good because if they're going to try and go out, you know, famously, jurisdictions don't like to work with each other. I mean, that's kind of always the case in true crime where you hear about something happening and I, you have to wonder if Brian thought this too, where something happens in one state, the killer lives and is, you know, spends his time in another state and ne never the two will meet, that the, yeah. the two jurisdictions don't talk. But in this case, they sure did. These, these police officers in Moscow, Idaho, I, you have to commend them it's a small town. They haven't had a murder there for seven years before this. And that was a very, it was solved like that. It was a very obvious, like, who done it. So they reached out to the FBI. They reached out to the state police. They were, like, talking with Washington state police. They were talking with Canada, Canada border guards in Mexico. Like, they were definitely all over it. So it was, it's pretty amazing to see that they were able to get a suspect in a relatively short amount of time. And it, yeah, especially since all the heat they took at the beginning. Yeah. 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 When when something as large scale and horrific as that happens, people want results very quickly. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, I believe as well, I think you alluded to this, I've actually covered it in your, in your video on this topic, that uh, an animal was found mutilated and killed not far oh, yeah. from the crime scene as well. Is, is there any reason to believe this is connected? 
Well, the police at the time said no, but again, like you kind of look back and think, gee, do you, is this, is this his first offense? If he is guilty, of course, he has the, you know, innocent until proven guilty, but if he is proven to be guilty, was this his first offense? I mean, do you go out and murder four college students on your first go around? My God. So a lot of people have thought, well, maybe it was a practice run that the poor dog who was found just brutally skinned and butchered miles away from the murder house, from the scene of the crime, just weeks before. I mean, it just seemed with the same type of weapon they believe. It just seems like to be a huge coincidence. But that is what the police have said in the past, that it is just a coincidence. It's just a coincidence, yeah. But yeah, and I, I think there's always this truism, isn't there? I think we're always told, and I've never actually looked this up myself, but there's always this uh, received wisdom that uh, people who are serial killers or potential murderers often start out with animals and, and things like that. Yeah. Absolutely. I, they call it the triad word, animal cruelty, bedwetting at a later age than you know normal, and setting fires are the three things that they have found kind of consistent across serial killers that's insane that the bedwetting thing i will admit was somewhat of a curveball yeah apparently that's a big yeah, red flag that is, that is a, that's a little yeah that so when i babysit like my little niece i'm like please don't be wetting the bed <laughs> <laughs> she's fine she's fine red flag red flag <laughs> still normal to do it occasionally at the age of 38 though right yeah okay well what what other things do we have i mean you mentioned a uh, ring doorbells that things like that uh, is there anything to your knowledge that other than the car has uh, we've got images of this particular suspect in the vicinity on on the night because it seems like we, we live in a time now where it's very difficult to stroll more than 10 yards without being picked up by some sort of cctv footage i mean what i was amazed to see on the, one of the video the video you produced that the, one of the local food stands had a live streaming uh video feed uh, that the some of the victims visited just before so do we have any other piece of information regarding this suspect video wise not necessarily uh not that's been released do you no, I mean, just as far as, you know, there's there's a little bit of video of him getting pulled over by the by the cops on his way home with his dad to Pennsylvania. You know, that they, they've been showing now. I mean, that doesn't that's not incriminating or anything. It's just video of him. Is so that sort um, of a routine stop, perhaps? Or were they speeding? Was there something? I think he was speeding. Yeah, they right. Twice. They stopped twice. Yeah. One for speeding and one just immediately after for tailgating. Both times he was behind the wheel. So he really, really wanted to get home. Not a safe driver. But, right. but yeah, it's, they've also thought that, and again, this is one of those law enforcement sources have said things that they have cell data putting him near the group of victims in the weeks ahead of the murders, which does not look good. Yeah. So for sure, that's going to be something if that is accurate and exactly what that means, like how close he was and how often and, you know, what times, that's certainly going to be something. But not to jump around too much, but that kind of brings me back to what the cops had said at the very beginning when they were like, well, the people were targeted. No, no, it was the house. Well, maybe it was both. They kind of have gone back and forth, which makes you wonder, well, was it the house? Some people have said this may be a rumor that's already been refuted. So I don't necessarily want to put this out there as fact, but that there might be some connection to a person or persons that lived in the area around the house that Brian might have a connection to them, which would have brought him into that vicinity of the house. Uh, okay. He thought, hey, there's a lot of good looking young people that live in this house that come over here. They have a lot of parties. It's the area around it is it's not an isolated area. There are houses and apartment buildings and, you know, kind of small rentals all around the house. It's in a very busy area. It's almost right across the street from a fraternity, from the one of the fraternities of the university. It's like within walking distance of the campus. I mean, it is like right in the middle of everything. So it wouldn't be hard to kind of observe the house. There's a parking lot right behind it that's for an apartment building. It's kind of like off on the other side. So there's, again, just so many people around in so many places to kind of just sit and watch and not be observed. Not it's be nothing noticed. but trees and it, yeah, it just would not be hard to observe 
people coming in or out of that house if the house indeed was targeted and not necessarily the people. It's just, it's a, it's very, there's so many unknowns that, and that there are also quite a few knowns for a case where the probable cause affidavit hasn't been released yet, which is probably why the judge issued a gag order last night on pro the police and other people involved with this case to just stop talking to the media because it seems like quite a bit of it seems to have been leaked already without even, you know, officially been released. So just to pick up on that then, I mean, it, the reason that maybe the police, I mean, what may be the reason the police aren't particularly forthcoming with information, could that be because they've got a suspect in their sights and they want to keep everything in their favour in terms of pursuing that? Could it be a case of they're trying to sort of uh, gloss over some incredibly sloppy work at the start of the investigation? What What's your instinct? Absolutely. Everything that I've heard and read, and you tell me if you think differently, is that they've just been keeping everything close to the vest because they kind of did already have an idea. It sounds like from very early on that they kind of had an idea of where they, where they were going with this and what they could do with it as far as maybe getting the genetic DNA samples and all of that. And so they've kind of just been working with a singular purpose and not and trying not to pay any attention to the people around, you know, being like, what's being, going on? Is this a cold case? because they really did sounds like they worked methodically and and moved forward with a lot of partnerships and help to get to this point so you have to assume that whatever they have is and they maybe didn't want to spook him maybe they didn't want to send him running off to canada i mean obviously that makes everything harder so whatever whatever they did they were doing it right i mean just the fact that they were able to arrest a suspect a random person from what we understand the relationship with these victims is not known exactly but we know just based on the fact that none of the family members knew him the surviving roommates they're not they don't believe they made a statement that they recognized him so this isn't somebody that was necessarily part of their circle in any way um so i mean you know yeah, just from know. like Dateline, you can tell that like just a random person, it's almost frighteningly easy that it how easy it is to get away with killing a random person if you didn't leave any evidence behind. Like like their killer, we have to assume believed that he didn't leave any evidence. So it's pretty impressive. It's just amazing. I suppose what's uh, I mean, yeah. I mean it's it's strange because I suppose what's particularly frustrating to people is it's not always um, the who. Sometimes we always have a who. It's the why that I think really gets under people's skin. Exactly. And as you covered in your video, um, and as you know, there was no evidence of any sort of sexual motive or sexual assault on, on the victims. So that that's kind of been ruled out. You mentioned this idea moments ago about you know people versus the property. It could have just been targeting the property, but you would have expected maybe some things to have been missing or some um, some evidence of a theft to, to your knowledge. What was anything taken? No, one of the charges against him is felony burglary, but that was based on breaking into the house for the purpose of committing a murder. They have nothing was taken. And so just to clarify, when we say, well, maybe it was the property that was the target, not necessarily for that kind of like material gain for robbing it, but just because it seemed pretty easy to get in and pretty easy to observe and easy to like understand who lived there and what their comings and goings were in a way that just for that alone, it may have been targeted. But again, of course, that's just speculation. What would be the, um, the benefit there then what would be the thing that would be attractive about uh, a house that's easy to gain access to and to observe? What, why would that be interesting to somebody who commit crime like this? Pardon? Yeah, I was thinking about that very question. I mean, I guess if you're targeting the house, if it's just, I suppose if you're targeting the person for a particular reason, there's a motive there. If you're targeting the property, I suppose it's just, I, I want to commit this crime and I think this is a place I could do it and get away with it. One of the things that he, as part of his criminal justice studies, as part of his master's degree, his senior project was actually reaching out to ex-cons, violent criminals to ask them what their thoughts and feelings were about the crimes that they committed before and after they did it. And one, it's a survey. It was a, an invitation to complete a survey, an anonymous survey. So 
we of course went on that just before it was removed it was removed pretty quickly but we managed to get on that pretty quickly too just to check out some of the questions that though that he was asking along with he's this it was his project but there were two other professors that you know signed off on it so some of the questions were pretty they get very detailed so the questions some of them were like how did you prepare for your crime ahead of time how did you choose the location how did you escape how did you get away how did you feel? What were you thinking before and after? How did you choose your victims? How did you choose your targets? A very interesting specific question. So based on the, and that was in June, 2022. So about seven months before these murders. And based on that, you have to wonder if a killer was considering committing, a, doing something you know this atrocious and you don't wanna get caught, you're gonna find someplace you don't, pe random people, you don't necessarily know a place, you know, you place you can see to get in and out easily, a place, you know, you can get in easily. Something like that could be some reasoning behind that. So the house is a target of opportunity. Yeah, could be, could be. That's just something could, that the police be. have said, have spect or have said in the past, who knows now what with this arrest, if they still, if that comes into play at all, but. Wow. I mean, is it possible as well that these are these people who who trespass and gain access as, as thrill seekers who didn't, you know, potentially didn't have any desire to harm someone, but might have been caught in the act or confronted? Well, you know, you you do hear about those cases where a cat burglar will come in to houses that it's very clear that there are people there and even people awake. And that exactly what you say for the thrill of it, for the just for the thrill of coming in, not necessarily even murdering somebody, but then if they do get caught, that often ends in, you know, bloodshed and loss of life. So, but in this case, they believe, just based on the charges read out, that he came in with the intention to kill. So they haven't gone further as far as like, with the intention to kill one person or all four or all six, and he got spooked and left with only four lives, but, that they don't believe he was there to do anything else but to murder. I mean, what's what's particularly gruesome uh, to consider about this is, is it appears to be one individual with a, a bladed weapon, several un other individuals. That's that's going to generate a lot of noise from that property. And I believe there were actually people on the property at the time that weren't targeted, weren't. Uh, but weren't uh, weren't uh, uh, woken up by any sort of noises or alerted by what was going on. I mean, maybe you can explain how something like that could possibly happen. Yeah, those are two girls on the first floor, the two surviving roommates. And they had said, again, they haven't really made any kind of statements speaking to that specifically, but there has been a lot of conversation around this in various outlets. And what we have heard and learned is that well, you know, it's a party house. That's very clear that, was, that there's no argument with that. As a party house, there's parties there constantly and they're used to seeing and hearing noise upstairs. And they may have heard something that night and just locked their doors believing it was a party, that their roommates brought people home and were having like a last minute get together or something. That's been one, that's been yeah. one speculation. The that's other is that they didn't hear anything at all. It's the house is laid out in such a way that the top floors, the, the rooms directly under those floors, two floors down, can maybe only hear like. But I would also, squeaking. I would also say that just being a twenty-something-year-old college kid who'd been out partying and gone to sleep, I mean, you know, sleep pretty hard and, and not hear anything. I, mean, yeah. I know. Yeah. I, I, I can attest to that yeah. for sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> So what do we know about the uh, the suspect, uh, Brian Koberger? I mean, I believe there is some reason to believe he went through quite a drastic personality change during high school. Yeah, well, we do. We know that when he was younger in high school, um, he dealt with a lot of being bullied because he was overweight. And at some point, just before his senior year, he managed to lose a bunch of weight and he gained a, a just a, a lot of confidence apparently it could be because he started to become more of an aggressor, more of a bully himself. 
And um, when he was in that situation of being overweight and being bullied, he also had a lot of difficulty with, with girls. You know, um, he didn't have a girlfriend. So once he lost the weight, he became more of a bully. And he also started to become um, sort of a creepy individual with, with girls. They, they always kind of felt that way with him. And as a matter of fact, there was a brewery he used to frequent in Pennsylvania where he would go and sit at the bar by himself and just watch the waitresses. And he wouldn't say anything. He would just kind of sit there and, and eyeball them until he had a few drinks. Then he would, uh, maybe, you know, his inhibitions would, would, would go, go away. Then he just became belligerent with them. So much so that it was so noticeable that the owner at some point took him aside and said, hey, you know, if you want to come in here and sit there and drink, that's fine. You can do that. But you've got to change your, your situation with, with, with the waitresses here because you're creeping everybody out. And if you can't do that, you're not going to be welcome back here anymore. And that's, that's a pretty big statement for somebody to, to, to make, I think, to single out one individual in a bar because there's lots of guys drinking in bars trying to, to talk to the waitresses so mm. you know he, he must have stood out quite a bit so that is that is just a, a something that we're aware of in his young younger life uh, behavioral wise which actually kind of makes you wonder if that might be one of the reasons one of the ways that if he did know the victims is that how he was in contact with them we know that two of them Zana and Maddie yeah, yeah. worked at a popular Greek restaurant in town, in Moscow. And it's very common for people, for students from WSU across the border in Washington to come to Moscow and vice versa. So it's very conceivable that Brian could have been at that restaurant and seen them. But, um, and maybe then followed them back to the rest of the, the victims. But again, that's just speculation, but it's it's just one of many ways that he could have come into contact with them if that was a targeted act. But as, as of now, there there is nothing official that we can say that links these victims with the suspects, is there? Which, which has a lot of people scratching heads. Yeah. Yeah, it's very unusual. Although the one of Kaylee Gonzalez's father has said that because they have his daughter's phone and they're looking at, you know, all of her her different connections with people has wondered, he has said out loud, he's hinted that he has seen some connections between this person and his daughter and her friend group. But you have to kind of wonder, you know, it's a father speaking, of course he's grieving. You have to wonder if that's true or if not and what those connections might be. But beyond that, there hasn't been a clear line drawn between that group and this person. But we have to assume that obviously those facts will come out in the trial, but hopefully they'll come out with the release of the probable cause affidavit whenever that happens. So let's, let's say hypothetically, and obviously we all here understand that, um, you know, everyone's innocent until proven guilty in, in due process and uh, justice must take place. But let's say that this individual is the person and he's, he's found and convicted as guilty. It, it, would he be, is there the death penalty in that particular state? In Idaho there yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, what has the public mood been like in the area after this? I mean, I mean, there must be some some sense of relief that they now have a, a suspect in custody rather than the idea of some sort of mass murderer on the loose. Absolutely, I'd say so. I think I think there's definitely a, a as you say, you know, we don't know if if if, if he's going to turn out to be the, the the person who actually committed the crime, but. The, the parents have expressed a feeling of, of relief knowing that somebody is in custody and, you know, an accused person. Yeah, I mean, um, certainly they've got to be relieved, but it's interesting because, I don't know if you heard this, but when he was arrested, apparently, according to News Nation's Brian Etten, that he said, he asked the police, was anybody else arrested? But then which of course would muddy the waters just to an accomplice, to somebody else, something like that. So it's been what, unclear why he would say such a thing. But then the follow-up to that is that he's now saying he doesn't remember saying anything like that. So it's, it's just interesting to, to try and work out like what his defense will be, what his alibi will be. I mean, they believe that these murders happen sometime between 3 and 4 a.m. So what kind of a defense could you have considering, you know, that the guy 
from what his classmates have said, doesn't necessarily have a, you know, bustling social life at that hour. I mean, you're going to either be in bed asleep or what are you going to say? But, um, yeah, it's definitely going to be interesting how it all comes out. Now he is back in Idaho as of today and ready to face like his first, his first hearing court procedure there. And that's when they say that they, it will be legal to release that affidavit and kind of offer more information. When we wake up in the morning, we get out of bed and we start our day with Koro Snacks. Koro is a healthy snacks brand focusing on bringing additive-free natural ingredients to their customers with fair prices in bulk packaging. They have everything from nut butters to free from baking ingredients to cooking essentials and of course the snacks. And the energy balls are delicious. Oh, they're my favourite, the salted pistachio. Ooh. Let's see what this one tastes like. Cheers. Cheers. Mmm. <laughs> mmm. So what makes Coro special in comparison to others? Their bulk packaging allow them to offer their customers high quality products at a fair price. For a 5% discount on Coro's products, use the code TRUECRIME with no space in between true and crime. The link to Coro's online shop is in the description box on YouTube. Thanks for supporting our sponsor. Right. So we're definitely keeping a close eye on how that unfolds. I mean, we spoke about this um, a little bit before, about this idea of the how, uh, sorry, the who and the why. And it seems like the who's often established, but we never, never always get the why. And that can be especially frustrating for people. I think people who aren't, you know, psychotic or prone to murder uh, can't understand why somebody else might be. And that's not necessarily a bad thing for sure. But would this be something that would really frustrate you if you never really got a why? Are you just, are you guys kind of satisfied with the idea of just having justice uh, served and somebody being put behind bars or convicted or whatever? Or, or do you, would you, would it really frustrate you not having a, a, a why on, on this case? I, I think, I, I mean, obviously having the right person in, uh, answerable to the crime is, is, is very important. But I do feel I, I do feel like like, yeah, I'd want to know I'd, I'd want to know why, you know, what the what the motivation is behind it. Um, just because I think most people would feel that way, because it, it allows you to, I don't want to say make sense of it, but it, it allows you to kind of make it a, a circle, you know, you, you kind of connects the, uh, the, the whole thing for you, maybe I don't want to use the word closure either, but the, I think you understand it's, it's just you feel like uh, it, it, it's a bookend, possibly. Yeah. Plus, I mean, I don't want to jump ahead, but I feel confident that once they outline what the relationship is between the two, that they will that will kind of understand what the why is. I mean, so many most of the speculation sure you probably heard has been around the fact that he might be like an incel type that involuntary celibate these angry, angry men who are just like out there wishing harm on every pretty girl that's ever rejected them. And I think in this case, that's pretty much the angle everybody's sort of going with of like, well, maybe it was, maybe one of them was the target. Interestingly, Kaylee Gonzalez was, she didn't even live there anymore. She was only there for the weekend. And so you have to wonder was, that's why her name has come up quite a bit about her possibly being the target because she was sort of the outlier that wasn't always there. So was that just the most horrible, tragic coincidence ever? Or was this, was did this person know, did this killer know that she was only going to be there and he only had a short window of time if he wanted to eliminate her and the rest of them, maybe the rest of them were target Bs. It's, it's very, it's hard to understand without knowing like the relationship between them. But I think once they outline that, it will be much easier to understand an actual motivation, even though no reasonable per person would consider that a motivation that this girl rejected you or she's, they're pretty and popular and you don't feel that way for whatever reason, you know, I mean, it's just, it's crazy, but, but I mean, that's the world that we live in. So <laughs> we yeah. don't leave the house anymore. Now we just stay inside. <laughs> <laughs> yeah there is definitely something to be said for this idea of um uh crimes in response to perceived slights against male honor it seems like a very common thing 
throughout the world, unfortunately. I just want to try to trace back the steps of the victims a little bit because I believe they were out doing what college students do, uh, drinking, having a good time at a particular establishment. In the early hours of the morning, they went to get some food before I believe they they caught like a shuttle chaperone service back to their property. Is that correct? Yes. And it doesn't seem like the suspect that's in custody now was with that group at any point leading up to them arriving there, does it? It doesn't seem like he came with them in, in the sense that maybe, you know, somebody would be picked up from a club and join the, the the group and then you'd move on and move on. It seems like he was either waiting outside the property uh, for them to return home. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly, once they get his cell phone records and understand a little bit more about what they meant by his phone pinging in their, in their vicinity in the weeks ahead of time and maybe even around that same time, again, just speculation, we would have a better idea, but we don't necessarily know what's not in the camera frame. Like you said, the Twitch live stream from that food truck shows so many people around, you know, in that general area waiting for food and talking and laughing, but we don't know who's, you know, around that corner or standing in the dark behind a tree or out of frame, whatever mm. yeah, out of frame. Because he certainly, I think we can be confident in you know, 99.9% .9 confident that he is not in their immediate circle. This is not a person that would have been out with them or jumping into rides with them in any way. Like this guy does not seem, he's quite, he's significantly older yeah, he's than them. He's 28. They're in their early twenties. You know, they're like this, like a beer commercial, beautiful. And he's like, you know, just kind of a normal guy and a creeper a guy that and people you, like when, call yeah, a creeper. Yeah. Like, I don't know that they're going to be like, Hey Brian, when you're 21, just, yeah. when you're 21, I mean, somebody who's 28 seems like seems so an old, old person. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. The world where they could have known each other, but um, but certainly you just don't, which makes it even creepier, and I think makes people more even more fascinated with this case is that stranger killings are very rare. I mean, that is kind of a comforting thought. They're pretty rare, but when they do happen, they're super bizarre and it's mm -hmm. and scary because then all of a sudden you're like, holy God, I'm absolutely not safe. Like anybody could just notice you for any reason. I mean when you think about it like that and it's just oh god I'm try finally not, not this, you, you know what i don't think i'm leaving the house now thank I you both thank you Welcome very much but i suppose another interesting aspect of this as well is it was in the very early hours of the morning so i mean it, it seemed weird to be um a case of uh, you know an opportunist killing it, it for, for him to be there at that time uh, with no other seemingly no other purpose it, it feels like there's a there's a uh, potential that he may have observed these individuals knew where they were waited for them to leave uh i mean it, it is strange i mean what time did they uh, if you were just put piecing the timeline together was it past 2 2 a.m when they arrived back at their property around 2 a.m by the time they were all home mm -hmm. and and the killings happened four four thirty well they're thinking they kind of had a big window like between three and four <clears throat> because Kaylee and Maddie were on the phone. They were calling Kaylee's ex-boyfriend, oh. actually, right up until almost 3, 3 a.m. So they know that, obviously, they're still alive at that point. And then, you know, just walking it through in your own head, they have food, they're making these drunk dials, whatever, and then they're kind of talking, and they're both in Maddie's room because, again, Kaylee was moving. So they're both, you know, talking, laughing, eating, you kind of go to bed, the lights are out, and then all of a sudden this horrible thing happens. So, yeah, around 4 a.m. in that area, 3.34. Yeah, I mean, the person could have been outside of the house when they all got home, <clears throat> but then waited until they felt enough time had gone by that maybe people were asleep or possibly even saw waited until he couldn't detect any more motion the lights were off it just seemed very still that's a possibility so in ten in terms of this uh, jurisdictional minefield where would this um court case be heard I don't moscow know. yeah moscow idaho Okay, that could probably when you threw Moscow at me then straight away I thought Russia's involved for a second then yeah, I, so, I quickly uh, remember yeah. <laughs> cool so um on top of that uh, your coverage of this what what's next for true crime recaps what what can people expect if they go to your YouTube channel well, that's a good question <laughs>
what, what is coming up? We've got we've got a lot of information on this. A lot of the things that we've talked about today, and a lot more things that we've learned about the victim in his early years. And I mean, honestly, if anything happened, yeah. if you're ever arrested for anything, everybody will come out of the woodwork to talk shit about you. So <laughs> you've got nothing but shame coming your way if you ever did anything. And that's certainly what we're seeing here. Like people, classmates, neighbors, everybody's coming forward to say, like, oh, he this and that happened. So a lot of information coming up on the channel about this. We're also seeing a lot of comparisons being made between Brian Koberger, the suspect, and Ted Bundy, of course, the notorious serial killer. In that specifically one crime of Ted's uh, is Chi Omega killings in 1978, I believe it was, where he killed, he attempted to kill four women in a sorority house on a college campus in Florida. And it was sort of a frenzied killing. And this there's some similarities between this and that in that even Ted Bundy's lawyer has said, you know, that his former lawyer obviously said there's some similarities between us. So, and Ted himself has been compared to Brian in that they're the shape of their face, their mugshots kind of have a lot of similarities. So, so we're going to go ahead and cover that Ted Bundy trace just so people can understand what actually happened there. And then you can choose for yourself, see for yourself if there's some similarities, but that's coming up week i will definitely check that out we've become some sort of uh true crime obsessives in my household at the moment uh still got still got to work through uh only murders in the building actually need to catch yeah. up with that. oh my so, god that's such a good show yeah we're really enjoying it um slightly left field question with you just comparing the way this suspect looks to uh ted bundy there is certainly something about the mugshot of a very dangerous criminal that makes most human beings go yeah i i can see it what i don't know if you have this experience but what's going on there with with the the way that we connect with people through their eyes where that can tell us a lot about sometimes or at least we believe it can about their psychological state well i think i think that you know people i i think people can be a little bit biased sometimes when when something you know when, when a terrible crime happens a murder and they come out with a picture of somebody I feel like no matter what that person looks like, they could yeah. they can look like uh, you know a, a homeless person, or they could look like a game show host. I think most people go, "Oh man, of course it's that guy." You know, <laughs> I think it's just the natural thing. Oh, look at him! Because when you put the image together with the act in your mind, either it's really like obvious, like yes, that person looks like a serial killer, or they look so much like a game show host or a model that you're like, whoa, that's even creepier, it, you know? So I think you kind of, you go along with the, um, with the thought process that's happening, uh, you know, that you're being presented this person. I think it's, I think people become a little bit biased that way. That's my yeah, this, personal thing. It's definitely a, a spot of projection there for sure. Um, so in terms of covering these things, and obviously where we touched about it a little bit, it can be quite grisly, very serious themes. It's death, it's murder. I mean, is this is there a part of you that sometimes thinks, you know what, I'd rather rather be doing something a bit more light than uh, creating content about horrible, you know, real life situations? <laughs> We're both like, uh, uh, I mean, certainly for me, I do appreciate it when a case comes across our desk or our radar that where the person didn't die. I'm like, oh, thank God. <laughs> so yeah. I can just like kind of have a little bit more like, okay, let's. You know what I mean? It is a little less like it's a little bit lighter. It's a little bit lighter to, when you have when when there's no death in the story. Um, you know, we always try to be very respectful uh, when we're when we're when we're telling these things. And when you do have a story that doesn't have uh, somebody dying in it, it it does it does allow you a little bit of a little bit of freedom. To, to be a little bit more lighthearted in your tone, um, you know, but I think, I think it's, there's so much of it out there. And I think that we both have the same interest that you just talked about at the beginning of this segment, that a lot of people in this country and in, in, in your country and in the world have, um, because it's a, I, I I think it's a rare piece of human nature that people are fa fascinated with. That, that's, that's what I think. And I, and I, and, and we're just a couple of people that are fascinated with it too. Yeah. But I think the worst just to keep going on that is when you, when the cases involve children, like 
the Madeline McCann yeah. case that it's just so brutal to hear about the things that this Christian guy has done to these other children that they've seen like pictures of and what he's done to this, even this woman, this older woman. And then to think that this poor child had to suffer, like, it's just, it's really, those are the cases like, I, I, yeah, there, I can't there, even stomach. There are some, it's, it's, it's hard to, to recount some of these things sometimes. It really is. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you both for uh, coming on and speaking to me. This hour has absolutely flown by and it's fascinating. I shall certainly check out more of your channel. Uh, so maybe you can tell our audience where they can find more of what you do. Well, you can find us True Crime Recaps on YouTube, Facebook, TikTok, Snapchat, all the all all, all, the, all, the, all the platforms. Yeah, if you just type in True Crime Recaps into your search bar, it'll 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 bring up. That's excellent. Thank you too. I appreciate your time. Uh, yeah, enjoy what you do. Thank you. Thank you, Thank so you very much. much. Have a good night. You too. Thank you.